back them dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Help Bill Boy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you tonight, Meryl McNally? I'm good, Zach. How are you? I'm good, thanks. We are here tonight to talk about the hours. I'm pretty excited about this one. How are you feeling about it? Uh, so excited. Yeah, <laughs> so excited. I'm so glad. So I'm so glad to have revisited this one. Yeah, this was a good... We had another movie all set to go, and then we it just kind of came up. I don't even remember the context of how it came up, and you said, maybe we should do that one next, and I will uh, happily go back yeah. to this movie any old time. But before we get to that, um, we yeah. I, I noticed we had some uh, some new, very nice reviews up on our, our iTunes thing. and um, I saw that. Everyone has been so lovely. Yes, it's been really good to hear, and, and it's been doing well, which, which we're both grateful for. We hope you will keep listening. <laughs> we hope we don't blow it, right. basically. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but one of them had a really interesting thing. Somebody said, you know, now that you guys have been devoting your first half of the show, basically, to award season stuff, which actually got some kind words. And uh, they said, what are you going to do now that the award <laughs> show is done? Basically, the first half of our show is just gone. So. We thought we would keep it going by just kind of starting a new segment uh, which in which we're going to talk about just things that we've been watching since we taped the previous episode. It's it, probably not Meryl-related things. So um, yeah. what have you been watching lately, Meryl? What have you been enjoying or not enjoying? Anything. <laughs> well, given that we, we taped our last episode, uh, I think a week ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah one week ago. Um, you know, I had I basically had time to watch the hours, and then I snuck in, I snuck in a few episodes of a a, a BBC television show called The Musketeers, which okay. I, I think wrapped up last year, and it's it's on Hulu. Um, <laughs> for everyone out there, you should know that I am an avid British television watcher, and I will watch the good, the bad, and the ugly as long as it comes out of the UK. And, um, yeah, so I've been going through that, and I just finished the third season, which was the final season, and it was, you know, swashbuckling fun. Was it really? Okay, see, now I've heard of it, but I've, I've literally not watched a frame of it. So would you, would you recommend starting it? Is it a good- yeah, I would. You know, the first the first season has Peter Capaldi in it, and he's he's currently Doctor Who in the UK for Doctor oh. Who fans, but he's, he's, he's also an Oscar winner. He won an Oscar um, for a short film that he did, and I'm trying to remember what year it was. Um, but he's a, he's a really lovely, lovely actor. And um, and then, uh, you know, the cast is this is what I love about Britain and and UK actors is that most of them have stage experience and right. are coming off doing. Uh, pr- pretty hefty stage work, and so, um, you know, of the guys who plays the mu- play the Musketeers, there's um, there's there's a couple pretty pretty experienced stage actors, and it just brings a presence to it. It's fun. It's swashbuckling fun. It's it's kind of tame. The sword fighting, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole thing. But it's 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 fun. I enjoy it. 
I would recommend it. Cool. Have you watched any of uh, The Crown? Oh, yes. I watched the The whole thing. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Again. (laughs) Yeah, that seems like it would be right up your alley. But um, there's a Stephen Daltrey connection. You know, the director of The Hours, he directed four episodes of that show. Well, and then Stephen Delane is also in it. Is he really? Okay. He is. He plays, um, oh, gosh, and now I'm going to be, like, the worst history student on the planet. Um, he, he plays the artist who paints um, uh, Churchill's portrait. And oh, okay. I should remember the artist's name off the top of my head. And, and the, the portrait did not go over well. Oh, okay. Well, he's, um, he's, he's fantastic in it. Yeah, he's he's great in the hours. I I don't know if I've ever seen him in anything else actually, but uh, he's fantastic in the hours. I'm sure you have, and you don't recall. Sure. He, his career has been pretty prolific, but he is, you know, in on sort of the American side of things, he's like, you know, government agent number four, <laughs> and sure. um. Yeah, he he pops up in unexpected places, but he's he's wonderful. And I had forgotten he was in the hours, and was pretty excited to see him. Mhm. Yep. I've been I've been <laughs> waiting. The Crown has kind of been on my list of things to watch. But the problem for me is, I mean, I know I am hardly the first or only person to have this problem, but like Netflix and Hulu are both so intimidating at this point because they're you know, and then you throw in Amazon Prime and you know. HBO and Showtime, and like everybody's pumping out such good stuff now. These, you know, these cable providers that I it's it's almost overwhelming because you know, like Bloodline is a show that I've started a few times, and then Stranger Things, and and you know uh-huh. uh, that one Drew Barrymore is in uh, on Netflix now. Uh-huh. It's just so much that you can't. It's, it's like there's so much content and not enough time to watch everything that it's just you have to kind of decide. Okay, I'm going to watch this show, and it's hard not to see something else and go, oh, I want to see that, you know. Um, so more than anything else, I just find myself, like, going back to the same old things that I've watched over and over again because it's easier than, like, starting something new and feeling like, I don't know if this makes any sense, but it, like, there's almost this, like, oh, I don't know if I can start that one because I wanted to watch this other one first, but, you know, there's, like, 10 yeah. shows, so it's hard to... I don't know, it's hard to know where to begin. I've started, you know, a few episodes. There are a few of them, like Grace and Frankie I watch you know, all the time um, when that uh-huh. comes out in new seasons. But I don't know. Other than that, I can't think. There are, uh, there are a couple of other Netflix shows that I do that with, but it's hard to keep up to date at this point. <laughs> yeah, you know what else I do is that, like everybody else, I will binge watch something and watch, you know, all, all of the episodes in a very short period of time. But then you're waiting another year for the next season to come out. And when... Right. Like, for instance, this happened with Grace and Frankie. I loved the first season. And, you know, the second season came out, and by the time it did, it had, you know, I had sort of lost it. You know, you lose plot and you lose. And I am, I'm one of those very OCD people that likes, you know, I like to be in the thick of it when when I go on to a second chapter of a story. And um, if I can't really recall and I'm not invested, I hate to pick up in season two. But then I never have time to go back and watch season one Uh (laughs) to, like, get myself to the same place. And so I've watched a lot of – 
I've watched like the first couple episodes of Bloodline and dropped it. I watched the first couple episodes of um, Santa Clarita Diet, which you very more that you mentioned, and uh-huh. and dropped it. And I tend to not go back because I just don't want to start over. Oh really? Yeah. No, I kind of understand that. I had that exact experience the, the couple weeks ago. I got the second season of the. Is it very different from anything, Meryl? But as I've mentioned a few times, I watch pretty much everything, and um, so it's yeah. not just this kind of stuff. But so the second season of Ballers, which is an HBO show, um, oh yeah, that that um, I think it's a guy who used to be The Rock, right? <laughs> Dwayne Johnson. Right? <laughs> I can't. You can't him not like that guy. I, well, he's fine. I can't say that I like love him <laughs> either. But um, it's him, right? And not. And Diesel. I don't know why I can't tell those two guys apart. I really can't. Yes, yes, no. Okay. It's The Rock. And um, and uh, Denzel Washington's son is in it. But it was and a couple other people who are really great too. But um, it was uh, it was that exact same thing where I watched the first season, you know, uh, on DVD when it came out, completely forgotten. I, I was like, I think there was a cliffhanger at the end of the first season, but I couldn't tell you what it was. And watching the second season was like, I don't know, this is a show that's, you know, made for for people like me where I can just pick it up and it'll be fine. And it was, you know what I mean? Like there was yeah. I, I I think I was maybe missing some thread that I knew whatever it was, maybe I could figure it out and, and move on. So um yeah, sometimes it's just assuming you you gotta kinda figure, okay, I'll be able to figure out what's going on even if I haven't seen the one before. It's like soap operas that run for years, right? That's the whole thing. Like you can some of them you can oh, yeah. after not having seen it for years and know exactly what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what's really funny is you said you get Vin Diesel and uh, um, Dwayne Johnson confused. Yeah. They um, they had some very open and notorious on set fighting for the Fast and the Furious franchise. Oh, really? Like it ended up on Instagram. They were so public about it, and they were, yeah. I don't know. I'm not quite sure what was going on, but I'm pretty sure those two guys don't like each other. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, you know, I got the impression Vin Diesel did something on set, and Dwayne Johnson went to Instagram to kind of vent about it because he was, and he was very clearly um, extremely irritated. Enough to go and you know to the to the, to the wide public about it, yeah. Right. So I kind of I kind of laughed. I'm sure they'd enjoy it. Somebody's confusing them. <laughs> I, I don't know. They look they're just big dudes that you know have bald. And heads. yeah, the, the sort of shaved head and the yeah. Yeah, actually, okay. Now that now that we're saying this, Vin Diesel is a um, he's my end to to what I watched this week. There are a couple things that I watched this week that I thought were. Um, kind of interesting. One of which was, uh, I think it's called Billy Flynn's Long Halftime Watch. It was the, oh, yeah. the Ang Lee movie that came out this year that for a while was positioned to be an Oscar, you know, one of those movies. Yeah. And it just didn't happen because the movie wasn't good enough. But Vin Diesel was in it. Um, and, was he? Uh, yeah. Not a huge part, but, uh, you know, kind of in, uh, yeah, he did some, there are some very interesting people in it. Steve Martin is in it and kind of a dramatic role. Oh. Um, Chris Tucker is in it, and I wouldn't say it's a dramatic really? role, but it's not a comedic role. It's one of those. Right. Um, and Kristen Stewart, although Kristen Stewart's um, role is similar to what she's been doing in a lot of other movies lately. Um, 
I don't know. It wasn't. Um, I, I didn't have a strong opinion about that one, one way or another. I thought it was fine. I didn't. I didn't think it was yeah. great. I thought. Um, actually, I thought Kristen Stewart was pretty good in it. Actually, I thought she was. Pretty good. That's what I heard. Yeah. Um, she does. She, actually, she's not in it all that much either. She plays the sister of this soldier. Um, it's basically this, you know, this one soldier, but his his whole unit is back. Um, you know, from from being deployed in in Iraq, you know, a very unpopular war, and they're kind of dealing with the, like, how do we put these kids on television and, you know, kind of win back some public approval, basically. And and so they uh, they go out during the halftime at, uh, at a football game. I don't know if it was supposed to be the Super Bowl. I don't think so. Um, I don't think it was a big enough thing. I think it was just a football game, but maybe it was supposed to be the, the Super Bowl. Um and so just kind of this, I don't know, this story of, of soldiers coming back from, from war and, and how they're met yeah. with public, you know, approval. But I don't know, it didn't have much of a, um, it didn't really take a stance one way or another. And it was kind of, it seemed like it was really trying hard not to take a stance. You know, like, and yeah. it kind of got to an interesting discussion. It kind of like got shut down really fast. And it just kind of, you know, soldier stories are interesting, but so I, I think maybe the thing that this movie had going for it potentially was the idea of like I mean, I guess it would be similar to a to a, a war movie about Vietnam, but like again, a very unpopular war. So it's not just a soldier coming back, but it's a soldier coming back from a war that, you know, most people don't support and, and how that's different than, you know, right. that's um, you know, World War Two or something where everybody was you know, kind of on the same page. So um, I right. saw that. I, I saw another movie called um, American Pastoral, which was I think a little better oh, yeah. than, than Billy Flynn's Long Halftime Walk. It was you, you and McGregor, right? Yeah, it was. I don't know if it was the first movie he directed, um, but he he directed it and he starred in it. And oh. uh, Jennifer Connelly and um, Dakota Fanning, although she wasn't in a whole ton of the movie, it was her character that you know kind of instigated the the main the main thing that happens in the film and then it's basically and then she disappears basically and then her parents, um, you know, McGregor and Jennifer Conley kind of uh it's it's about how they deal with the effects of what she's done and her disappearance basically. So I liked that one. Did you like it? Yeah. I did. Yeah. I I I wouldn't say I loved it, but I liked it very much. I thought all three were really good. Jennifer Conley I thought was really good. Um Ewan McGregor is not somebody I tend to get like crazy about. I, you know, I think he's very good, but I, he's not somebody that I ever get super excited about. Um, but yeah. I thought he was good too, and I liked his direction. Um, so yeah, I thought they were. Yeah, I'm interested to see that. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, it kind of that uh, one not, didn't get all that much. Um, you know, you didn't hear much about that that film. But, no, no, but I've seen it on, you know, I've seen it on streaming and and have sort of been sort of peripherally aware of it. And um, I, I'm very nostalgic about Ewan McGregor. Um, from, from what? From train spotting and, hmm. you know, uh, you know, a life less, or his sort of early Danny Boyle stuff. Yeah. And and then obviously you know Moulin Rouge and and he, he's just so charming. He's definitely got a charm to him. And um, uh, you know he kind of laid low for a while. Yeah, he does. 
and he made um, one film he made that's just very, very, very charming is Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Sure. Um, yeah, but I I enjoy him. I think he's charismatic and. Yeah, um, I don't dislike him by any stretch. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just not somebody that I go, oh, great, he's in this movie. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's, you know what? I don't either, which is so funny because if I think about him as an actor, I think he's really lovely and I think he's great. And, right. um, you know, I certainly look twice at something he's done, um, you know, whether or not I, I am going to watch it because he's in it. But I, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I'm not super compelled to. Right. Interesting. Yeah. No, I don't want to sound like I'm I'm saying anything negative about him because honestly, looking back at him, I can't honestly say. Not only could I not say that I've not enjoyed him in something, I can't I, I can't off the top of my head think of any movie even that he's been in that I've gone, oh, that's not good. You know, I, 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 not only is he always reliably good, <laughs> but see, I didn't see any of those. <laughs> so, oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> Woo! It's so rough. They're pretty yeah. rough. Yeah. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think when we were in college and you and I were in college together, I think I did see the second one, actually. I think I think because of college, I think so, because I think they, it was one of those things where, you know, the students' activities, there were certain nights where, like, you could go to the movie for free. You just had to show up in the lobby of such and such dorm at such and such a time, and they would take a bus there. I remember that happening the first couple <laughs> years that I was there. I don't remember I have- it happening later on, but. I have a memory of you telling me that you had never seen the Indiana Jones movies. Is this still true? Oh, really? I think you might be thinking of the Star Wars movies. I, I've definitely Maybe. seen the Indiana Jones movies. My email address, okay. my email address even references the fact that I've not seen Star Wars. I tried to, I tried to watch the first one, not recent, you know, not not that long ago, yeah. and I I don't know. It's it's a hard thing. That's not my genre. You know, I guess. It's kind of like, it, you know, it's it's like chicken liver. You know, if you're not introduced to Star Wars at a really young age, you will never develop a palate. That's probably I, true. I, yeah, because, you know, when I was, um, you know, when I was little, we lived out on a ranch and we didn't have cable. I think I talked about that last episode. And my parents had this video disc player. And I'm definitely dating myself here. I mean, these these films were they were like giant records in these plastic casings, and you slid them into the machine. And my parents had this pretty phenomenal movie collection on video disc, and um, Star Wars was one of them. Yeah. And uh, uh, oh my gosh. Oh yeah. I mean, when you're little, you're not you don't think about the quality of the script or the dialogue or the plot. You you right. just, you know, you fall in love with sort of the over the top characters and you know, I thought Princess Leia was the most beautiful, amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um and so it very quickly becomes nostalgic. Yeah. No, I'm I'm sure you're right. The thing that struck me as I was watching the first one actually was I found myself thinking how were kids interested in this? Because it was kind of like, I, I'm sure I didn't watch it long enough to get to the action stuff, but the first part of, of the first Star Wars anyway was just, you know, was dialogue. There wasn't like shooting and there wasn't, um, you know, those kind of battle scenes. And there, like everybody's a, like, 
I, I couldn't figure out who was who, basically, and, and why people yeah. were fighting. It's just, I couldn't figure out the who everybody was, and it, it confused me. And I remember thinking, you know, how are kids keeping this together? Um, but, you know, they, I they a are. nine-year-old. Really? See, I have a nine-year-old no. nephew who, like, loves these things, and he gets books about them and, you know, knows who the Sith Lords are and who the, you know, all these oh, yeah. things. And, I don't know. Well, I think now kids are inundated. So, I mean, when I was little, I had the trilogy and that was it. Like, I couldn't go to the store and and buy books on Star Wars. And it, it really wasn't franchised that way. And right. so, um, and if those things did exist, they weren't in my, you know, wheelhouse. I didn't, I didn't know about them. And I don't think I really followed or pieced together the plot besides the major you know, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Princess right. Leia is his sister. Like, sort of the basic plot stuff. I think what captures kids initially is how different the world looks. Oh, that's an um, idea. It was visually capturing um, yeah. for me. And... Um, and I think that sticks. And that, I mean, my nephews, yeah, they have all the books, and they know. I mean, the details of the world right. are, are insane. Yeah, they're insane. Yeah. I mean, one day my my nephew came at me, and he was like, "Where's my ad at?" I'm like, "What are you saying? That's not English." And I finally, my my other nephew was finally explained to me that an ad at is one of the you know, machines that they drive around in Star Wars. Oh. I've been watching this thing since I was eight, and I had no clue. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We're, I'm going to try again, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I do feel like it's something that I should watch at some point, or, or all the movies. And I did see, not the most recent one, I didn't see Rogue One, but I saw the one that was out like a year or two ago. Force um, Awakens. Yeah, and, you know, I, I didn't entirely understand what was going on, but I was entertained by it. You know, I mean, I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was well done. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe I had the same, ex- or roughly the same experience watching that that everybody else had about the first, you know, the first trilogy. I don't know. Uh, I think it's always yeah. different when you see it in a theater, and it's just kind of like it's just impressive because it's big and it's happening, you know. Um, it's hard yeah. going back and watching it on a small screen, but... I don't know. That's the same experience little kids now would have with it, so who knows. But yeah. anyway, well, let's transition into the hours. Um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, the only podcast where we discuss Star Wars and the hours in depth together. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so here's the thing with the hours. As, mm-hmm. as you kind of said earlier, um, that with the with the pedigree of this movie, I cannot... I imagine a cast like this. And, you know, I mean, the cast list for this includes Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, Julianne Moore, Jeff Daniels, Ed Harris, John C. Riley, Allison Janney, Tony Collette, Claire Danes, Eileen Atkins, Margot Martindale, Miranda Richardson, Stephen Delaney. You know what I mean? Like, it just It's unbelievable. Linda Bassett. Yeah, it goes on. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there are a few movies that are like that, but not many. And and I really think with this quality of of actors, it's just craziness. It's craziness that all these people are in this one movie. It's it's just What's something. also amazing to me about the cast is that 
Um, you know, so often, I, I would definitely call this an ensemble film, and so often um, now, you know, I think they pull, try and pull in as many big names as possible, um, not necessarily with an eye for who best fits the part. Mm-hmm. This is so well cast. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is just so beautifully perfect for their part and, and does such an astounding job with it. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's killer. And, you know, in addition to the pedigree on screen, the pedigree right. of the film off screen is really astounding as well. Yep. yep. It's produced it's... by Scott Rudin, who's basically produced um, everything ever. Right, anything good <laughs> ever, right? Yes, anything good and, ever. And good some of the important. stuff... Right, and some of the stuff that, you know, I mean, he's had, he's not everything he's done has been perfect either, but, you know, he, I think, has a better track record than just about anybody on the producing side. Yeah, he produced Fences, which was just recently nominated for an Oscar and obviously many other Oscar nominees. It was directed by Stephen Daltrey, who, um, um, oh my gosh, he, he directed The Crown, correct? Or at least episodes Four episodes, of. yeah. He, okay, so here's something interesting about Stephen Daltrey. This was really the second movie he made after Billy Elliot. Mm-hmm. So he's really, at this point, like today, New. has really made about four movies. Um, Billy Elliot, The Hours. Then he made uh, The Reader, which won Kate Winslet, her Oscar. Yeah. And then after that, he did the loud, uh, what was it, extremely loud and incredibly close, that 9-11 movie. Um, right. So that one I haven't seen. Um, but, you know, that one didn't get quite the great reviews that all of his other stuff did. But he's made four movies and been directed for, you know, been nominated for Best Director for three out of those four movies. That's amazing. That's crazy. Yeah, and he's done a few yeah. TV things like The Crown, and he did a TV movie of a play that Helen Mirren did. Um, yeah, so the he, audience. Right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's... Uh, remarkable, remarkable. Um, Michael Cunningham wrote the novel, and David Hare wrote mm-hmm. the the screenplay. Um, so yeah, there's a couple. There's some connections with David Hare too. You mentioned one to me earlier before we started recording. Yeah, da- David Hare is a very accomplished playwright, and um, actually, his his play Skylight is one of my favorites. Um, oh, sure. And um, he also wrote. Um, the screenplay for a film called Plenty, uh, I think from 1985 that Meryl Streep was in. So she yeah. she's worked with him before. Yeah, and that's um, that's based on a play too, which actually is still done. I know Rachel Weisz uh, just did that play a couple of years ago. Um, she, mm-hmm. So you know people are still doing that that play. I think it worked better in a play than it did as a movie. We'll get to that movie, of course. Um, yeah, eventually. I have not seen it. And actually, he just um, recently did a movie called Denial with Rachel Weisz, actually. So I guess right. there's another connection there, which um, I saw. I thought it was, was pretty good. And yet another connection I saw on Broadway, Julianne Moore in uh, a David Hare play, correct, called oh, wow. The Vertical Hour. And I actually, I went to see it three different times. Um, oh, Wow. I really loved it. I really loved it. And in fact, I met her uh, after the first, maybe the first time or second time. And I said, I think it was the second time I saw it. I said, this is my second time seeing it. And I said, I'm, I'm going to try to come back at the end of your run. And she said, boy, that'll be really interesting, you know, to to, to hear 
like somebody's perspective of you know what it's yeah. what it like at the beginning and the end. And, um, so it was Julianne Moore and Bill Nye, who's a great British actor too. He's probably yeah. best known for for Love Actually. And um, the first he was time in Skylight, I, actually. Was he really? Uh huh. With Oh yeah, I think David Hare works with. I mean, Rachel Weiss also did page the page eight. Um, uh-huh. I'm trying to think what the trilogy is called uh, with Bill Nye and and David Hare wrote those. Well, see, he, he when people continue to work with you, it's a good yeah, <laughs> it's a good oh uh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, the vertical hour. I was just kind of fascinated by that play. It was. Um, it actually kind of had some some tones of uh, like kind of kind of some post war George W. Bush kind of you know stuff in there. There were some lines that in a in a New York Broadway theater got some rounds of applause. Um, Interesting. Because they were pretty cutting. So, yeah, the pedigree for this film, like you say, up and down. And actually, another one that's worth mentioning is Anne Roth did the costumes yes I think. oh she um she is somebody who Meryl has worked with a number of times and um you know it was interesting because I was as I was watching um a lot of interviews really all of the cast was giving Anne Roth a lot of credit um you know for for her work on the on the costumes for how the film yeah oh yeah she actually just recently did Ricky and the Flash with Meryl Streep Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, uh, Nicole Kidman was saying, you know, after after this was the first time that she worked with her, but after uh-huh. that she kind of started working with her a lot. They worked on Cold Mountain and Stepford Wives and um, Marco at the Wedding and I think a couple other ones that she worked with too. But yeah, she's done, she's done really a lot of um, Meryl's movies over the years. Before yeah, and after the quite Smoke a few I'm looking at. Yeah. So I think Meryl was kind of in, integral in, in bringing her on, but um, ended up getting a nomination for Best Costumes for Anne Roth, or Costume Design, I should say. And, uh, deservedly so. I mean, I I actually, um, you know, I noticed the costuming. It was so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which you don't often do. Like, you usually notice it when it's bad. Right. Um, otherwise, you're just sort of immersed in the world. But I, I, there were actually there was a moment at toward the beginning of the film when Meryl Streep's walking down the street. Wow, I mean that costume is fabulous. I mean it just so it, it helps capture the character so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the same thing with with well all of the characters, but Julianne Moore's in particular. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so before we get too far into it, let's keep up mm-hmm. our tradition of kind of giving a, a synopsis. This synopsis? is a harder one to do. Yeah, are you are you good to go on this one? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So okay. so this this film is um, <laughs> it is hard. Film is based I know. on Michael Cunningham's book, which is um, I I would call a tribute to Virginia Woolf's Miss yeah. Dalloway. Yeah. And the film the film deals with Virginia Woolf, um, played by Nicole Kidman, while she's writing Mrs. Dalloway, um, Julianne Moore's character, I, I believe in the 50s, 
um, who is reading Mrs. Dalloway and her sort of experience with it, and then Meryl Streep's character, who is sort of living out a modern-day Mrs. Dalloway uh, plot. And um, I, I would say, plot-wise, it's a little difficult to discuss, Right. Um, and maybe you've got some insight. I think, broadly speaking, the film really is about um, sort of um, people's experience of of mental illness and, and what it means to be um, what it what it means to have it and deal with it, and also um, how it affects your relationships with other people. Right. Um, yeah, um, sort of a broad, broad stroke. Any anything to add to that that would sort of help people who haven't seen it? Well, I think that was I think that was good. I think you know it, it's one of those it, it, basically what a lot of the things that come up in this movie, like you say, are not only mental illness but suicide comes up um, mm-hmm. in in several of the storylines and and the idea of depression and what depression looks like and the idea yeah. of you know once you get to a certain point. Do you continue to live for yourself, or do you continue to live for the people you know who are closest to you, who for one reason or another kind of need you to stay alive? Basically, like what is your obligation to other people to stay alive yeah. at a certain point? When you've reached that, when you've reached that point where it's no longer working for you, when when does it become selfish to to do something drastic? you know, because you're needed by other people. And and really, I think that question is brought up in all three timelines. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the Julia Moore segment was moved to the early 50s. In the book, it's late 40s, but they moved it to either 1951 or 1952 in the movie um, to kind of have a little bit more of the post-war kind of everything returning back to normalcy kind of thing. I think they uh-huh. in the book there was more of a maybe more of a thread that it was um still kind of the country was basically recovering from, from World War Two basically and by fifty one, fifty two things have kind of righted themselves again in a way. Um Right. Yeah. So where did I start have with not this one, read right? the book. Have you I did well I did um I don't think I read it appropriately because I think I think I read it um, kind of quickly when the movie came out, um, and okay. uh, I don't remember all that much about it. So I don't remember, you know, I don't think it was a deep dive into it. But yeah, I read it at the time. Um, yeah, I don't remember as much as I really should. So I felt like I something really was a little bit missing for me in that regard. Not, I mean, I no, I haven't read the hours, but also um, I read. Oh God, I read Mrs. Dalloway. I don't know, twenty years ago, I, and so I really have absolutely no recollection besides broad strokes of Mrs. Dalloway. And I think it. I, my recommendation to anybody who decides they want to watch the hours is to at, at least, at least, at the very least. Do your Google homework and read about Mrs. Dalloway before you before you dive into the film. I think it's helpful. Although, yes, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. However, I think it's interesting to note. So I have the DVD of this movie. I just, for previous listeners, that's no surprise because I have all the DVDs. But it's kind of an interesting <laughs> DVD because it actually, unlike some of the other movies, it has a lot of special features, including 
what I think may be the only Meryl Streep commentary track where she participates, actually. Really? Um, well, yes, but it's kind of funny. Okay, so it's it's all three of them. It's Meryl Streep, Julianne Moore, and Nicole Kidman, except you can tell they weren't actually recording it together because it's like Meryl will say Oh, that's something. too bad. Then a couple seconds later, Julianne will start, but there's no interacting. There's no like, oh, yeah, and, or there's no interaction between the three of them whatsoever. So you can tell it, it might not even, well, no, it is a commentary track because they both do reference things. They go, oh, I just saw blah, blah, blah in this scene or whatever. But anyway, the reason I'm bringing that up is because Meryl mentioned in her part of the commentary track that she had, like you, she said that she had read most of Virginia Woolf's work in college, but she said that mm-hmm. she didn't think that she really fully understood it, but she intentionally, when she was making this movie, did not go back to it because she felt like her character, Clarice Vaughn, would probably have had the same experience where she would have read it in college, didn't understand it really, and would never have picked it up again. She felt like that was a connection to her character. So she intentionally did not go back to the story. That's very interesting. That that makes sense, too, because, I, I mean, particularly with her character, she's sort of a living embodiment of the Mrs. Dalloway character. And and right. it... I, I don't – that makes sense. I mean, I don't think it would behoove her to, to you know, revisit the work that is essentially meant to be her story. Right. And she also mentioned yeah. that because Ed Harris's character, who we'll talk about maybe in a second and explain uh-huh. who he is and why he would say this, but he continually – like his nickname for her character is Mrs. Galloway. That's what he refers to right. her as. And and Meryl Streep said there was a part of her that kind of felt like she would know that, like, that's a, a little bit an endearing uh, nickname, but there's probably a little bit of a barb behind it. And uh-huh. so she felt like Clarice probably wouldn't go back to the book because there would be a part of her that wouldn't really want to know, like, what it was really that he was saying about right. her. Um, so, yeah, let's let's maybe talk – it's it, I think in this particular instance, maybe the reason that it's such a complicated thing to talk about plot-wise is because there's three separate plots, right? It's three different there stories. There are. And, and pretty uh, distinct. Yeah, very distinct. And there there are layers um, that overlap. Like Julianne Moore's character, for example, um, when she's older, you know, her character is mostly shown in the 50s. Uh, right. But she she does show up at the very end of the film in Meryl Streep's 2001 timeline uh, because she plays the mother of the Ed Harris character, who is, in her yeah. segment, of course, a little boy. So that's the only right. kind of, like, crossover. Nicole Kidman obviously doesn't show up in Julianne Moore's timeline or anything like that. But um, So should we start by maybe talking about Meryl's timeline? Yeah. Yeah, let's visit. Um, let's visit each each timeline for sure. Although they, Merrill's, I think, is the most complex, probably. I, I was going to say maybe we should go the other way and start the earliest yeah, and move Nicole on. Kimmen. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, you wanted to. Uh, Nicole Kimmons yeah. is probably the easiest to explain because she plays I think Virginia so. Woolf. <laughs> um, yeah, because it is it her her plot line is. It's almost like a, you know, it's, it's basically a, a, a biopic in some ways. Right. Um, it, it starts. The film starts in in 1941, and and um, I mean, I don't think it's a secret or a plot a plot spoiler that Virginia Woolf took her own life. Um, right. Well, she drowned. 
And, I think they um, even showed that in the in the trailer for the movie, her walking into yeah. the river. You know, I mean, it's the first it's the first shot of the film is essentially mm-hmm. her writing, um, writing her her uh, letters to her husband and, and family, and and you know, walking into the river. So that's where you start in 1941, and then it jumps back to 1923, where um, she and her husband have sort of removed themselves from the London scene to Richmond to live sort of a quiet, more peaceful life because she's dealing with um, depression and and bipolar disorder. And she is in the process of, or just beginning to write Mrs. Dalloway. Uh And um, every time you revisit Virginia Woolf's character, Nicole Kidman, she's in the process of writing Mrs. Dalloway and, um, you know, dealing with, dealing with her depression and um you do meet her sister in the process played by the wonderful Miranda Richardson uh-huh. and it, i mean it really is you know in addition to dealing with her own struggles um you do see a lot of you know her relationship with her husband and how he's trying to cope and deal with it as well right anything yeah. anything we should add to that no i think that's good for her plot line actually yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty basic and then we cut I will and I don't know while we're on the subject of their timeline um I'm going to go back and say that Stephen Delane is so wonderful Nicole Kidman is wonderful I yeah. forgot how wonderful she was in that performance she really is uh-huh. I, I mean I I feel like I feel like the Oscar was well deserved but the I, man I who do. plays the act yeah do you I do which is kind of funny because you know um so somebody had timed out. This is another one of those things that's on the Internet that somebody timed out. I think we did this with Florence Foster Jenkins. But somebody uh-huh. timed out how um, how many minutes each of the three leads had. And, you yeah. know, I remember it feeling like Nicole Kidman's film the first time I saw it. But she's by far the least of the three. Meryl Streep yeah. is the most with 42 minutes. Julianne Moore is at 33 and Nicole Kidman's only in 28 minutes of the movie. So she's in basically and she a quarter won best of the movie. actress, right? Yes, she Not did. supporting. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I think I I think I was more impressed and moved by her performance this viewing than I was at the time I first saw the film. And oh, yeah. um I, we we can talk about that later in terms of, you know, then versus now, but <clears throat> um yeah, I thought she was she was really really wonderful and and um, in fact, I think my favorite scene of the film, you know, barring Meryl, is is a scene towards uh, it's about two thirds of the way through at the train station between yeah, her and her husband. Yeah, I was just going to say it has to be the train station scene. That's the one that wanted to ask. Beautiful that scene right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I love their use to, the the way distance between the two of them is used in that. In that it's such a slow burn with them kind of moving closer to each other. It's kind of set up so that they're they're starting out pretty far apart, but then they as they get closer, they're kind of it's it's like they're finally saying the things, or she's maybe finally saying the things. Actually, really, both of them though are finally saying the things that um, you know they should have been saying all along. Maybe they have been saying all along, and now are just saying louder and more, um, mm-hmm. you know, more concretely, but. Yeah, it's that's a that's a brilliant scene. All I think all three of these characters get just beautiful scenes though. I think uh Julianne Moore's oh, scene with Tony Collette is just 
something else. Oh, and Meryl, God, Meryl has four of them. Yeah, Meryl has a good yeah, three so, or four of them. Yeah, I mean there are there are there are money scenes for all three of these actresses. I mean where yep. they 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 nail it in a way that that puts them in a category all by themselves. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the the second plot, the sort of second plot line with Julianne Moore, you skip forward to America, nineteen fifty one ish, right? Yeah, fifty one, fifty two. Mm-hmm. They kind of don't. I don't think they say. Exactly yeah, they don't really say. And um, you know, she is Julianne Moore plays sort of your standard suburban housewife, and she's pregnant with her second child and has a little boy, and she's married to. Um, uh, John C. Riley plays her husband, and he's mm-hmm. he doesn't have much screen time, but he's pretty wonderful too. He and is. I, I, mean, I think he's really good at, at playing that. Like it's such a it's such a like uh, thankless role in a lot of ways, right? You know, but he's so good in it. He is. I think what he he added a layer of you know she's she's basically your your un uh, without trivializing it she is your unhappy housewife. You know, yeah. she, I don't think she was ever, I think she feels like she was never really meant to get married. And in, in the scene with Tony Collette comes over, who's her neighbor, and is, you know, sort of all facade. And, you know, she makes a comment about how, you know, these men that came back from World War II and didn't they deserve it all. There was a sense that you 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 went along with what they wanted because they had been through so much. Oh, God, I'm, I'm going to let you talk about that scene with Tony Collette because I, I don't even have words. I know. Well, that's the thing. Okay, so listening to the to the commentary track and a lot of interviews with Julianne Moore, it was interesting because she kind of started by talking about how you know by giving Stephen Moultrie a lot of credit because this film, because it's three separate stories, they were shot separately. So again, you know, there's uh-huh. a short scene with Julianne Moore and Meryl Streep together, but the, it's very small. So they shot Meryl's part of it first, then Julianne Moore, and then. Um, and then Nicole Kidman's part last, and um, so it was. It was funny because uh, Nicole Kidman was saying in her interviews first that she loves to rehearse and she loves to rehearse a lot. Now Stephen Daldry had mostly come from the theater, so again, you know, he had just directed Billy Elliot, but he was he was definitely more used to the theater, you know, kind of rehearsal schedule, and so he loved rehearsing too, and they rehearsed a lot. Julianne Moore says she doesn't like to rehearse at all. I mean, doesn't like it at all. So, so to have that transition made was very probably hard <laughs> for for Stephen yeah. Audrey, among other people. And then Meryl, it was kind of funny too because she, in her thing, she said, "Well, I was reading about those two and, and their rehearsal things and all of that." And she said it was funny because it never really came up for me. <laughs> she said we didn't really rehearse very much either, but it wasn't like a thing. She said we shot a lot of stuff. Um, but anyway, the reason I'm saying that is because it was kind of interesting because Julia Moore then was talking a lot about most of her scenes, and this is very true, were with that little boy. And so, um, uh-huh. you know, she said, first of all, on set, it wasn't like having another, like, grown adult actor who you could converse with in between scenes. You know, it was just kind of, it was harder in that regard for her. Plus, um, you know, things were a little bit hard because because she was dealing with a young child, she didn't end up having a lot of dialogue. Or the dialogue that she had was was stuff that she wasn't really saying, you know, how she was feeling. All Everything was kind of, she would be making a cake, 
And then we right, were interpreting, right? And we were interpreting through what she was doing and how she was approaching everything, how she actually felt. But it wasn't like the other two characters who talked who talked a lot about their feelings. Julia Moore didn't right. get to do that, except for this one. Well, and even then, she wasn't talking about her feelings. But the scene between her and Tony Collette kind of crackles because of that. It's it's the one scene where she gets to like interact with a with another adult and gets to have this conversation that has so many layers to it. Because as you said, I think you put it perfectly before when you said Tony Collette is all facade. You know, when she when she uh-huh. comes to Julianne Moore's house, Julianne Moore's character is in you know a robe and she's making a cake and she's not made up. Um, and you know, right. then Tony Collette comes over and she's very put together and kind of a little bit condescending about a few things to, to Julianne. Anyone Moore's can character. make a cake. Right. Yeah, the like <laughs> you know, that I'm sure I'm sure you could do better than this kind of vibe, but don't worry, your husband will love it anyway, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> But you can tell she's so you know, there is you can see it on her face, those moments where it kind of stings uh, you know, Julianne Moore's uh-huh. character a little bit. But at the same time, she's just so happy to have somebody to talk to. Um, and then things take kind yeah. of an interesting turn because Tony Collette's character reveals something very personal about herself. And, and you know, it's, it's something very serious. She ends up having to go in for surgery. She says, I have to go in this afternoon and, and have the surgery. That scares her. And so she starts to cry. So Julianne Moore's character gets up and goes over to comfort her and uh, comfort her, and um, they end up kissing. And uh, yeah. that moment is so stunning because it's, you... It's so it's, stunning. It, it's because you can see Tony Collette's character give into it. You know, there is, there's uh-huh. no pushback. She accepts the kiss. You know what I mean? Like, she closes her eyes. It's not a short kiss. It's, not, it's also not done in a way that's... Um, I don't. I don't know even how to say it, but it's like it, it's, it's such, not a. It's not a super sexualized kiss. It's just. Right. It's a very intimate, tender moment between these two women. Right, but like you say, so it's yeah. not a super sexual kiss, but it's also not a completely innocent kiss either. It like no, it's, it's completely in that middle ground where yeah. we're not really sure what to interpret it as. And so, like I say, Tony Collette's. Um, reaction to it is fascinating because she totally accepts it in the moment and I think even kind of smiles afterwards and they kind of have a moment of, you know, you know, figuring out what just happened and then it's like it shuts off for Tony Collette and then yeah. she goes into denial yeah. mode where, you know, it's as if it never happened and, and Julia Moore's character says, you don't mind? And, you know, she pretends that nothing happened and I think yeah. that is just such a it's, yeah, it's, it's so powerful. Different. It's a powerful it generational thing too. Both yep. both of my grandmothers had that skill, and, and yep. I I watched them use it more than once. It was really astounding that they could just. It was more important how things appeared than than the truth the truth of it. Like the right. truth was <laughs> was not important at all. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, oh gosh, and it's so beautifully done by Toni Collette. She's like, and the facade's back up. The walls are up and we're going back to, yeah. Yeah, it's such a good scene. You know, she's so good in this movie, too. The scenes with her dropping, you know, her son off at Margot Martindale's 
house. Oh. Um, it's just heartbreaking. And then she goes to the hotel, and, and you think she's she's going to kill herself. And, you know, there are so many times, I think that storyline more than any of the others, it's the, like, will she or won't she thing. Yeah. Um, and it's just so good. Really, all three of them are just amazing. Yeah, the scene, this right towards the end of her storyline, you know, she she's decided not to take her life. She goes back. She picks up her son. She goes home. They have the birthday celebration for her husband, and then there's that last scene with her um, b- before she sort of enters Meryl Streep's storyline, where she's in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. and sitting on the toilet and the camera, you can see her and then through the door you can see her husband on the bed but he can't see her. Right. And he's asking her what she's doing and she's, you know, she's saying things that sound completely normal like, I'm brushing my teeth, I'm coming, but then her physicality is just so tortured and and she's hurting so badly. It's a really, it's an unbelievable performance. I just, yep. I really blows my mind. <laughs> yep, it's it's kind of funny actually because you know, um, you could argue all three of them deserved you know nominations for this surely, and yet at oh, the yeah. same time, it was kind of an interesting year really for all three of them because Meryl had also done adaptation the same year, which she did end up getting nominated for best supporting actress uh, rather than for the hours. Julianne Moore was nominated for Best Actress in Far From Heaven, which if you've ever seen that, I mean, that's oh, as yeah. good as Julianne Moore has ever been, too, although she's so good in everything. But I think Far From Heaven is just, that's one of those ultimate peak performances for her, too. Um, yeah. Nicole Kidman had just come off the year before. She, it was her huge breakout year when she had Mulan Rouge and the others. Um, right. So this year was... Um, you know, this was kind of it for her. Although right after this, she did that. Um, oh, that, you're talking about, is it Dogville or? Yes. It's, yes, a, it's a Lars von Trier film, right? Right. Yes. Dogville. So Dogville was like right after this one. And I'm not sure if it was like, you know, in the same year or not. But I mean, really, all all three of them had like huge years, you know, where they were yeah. where they were either nominated for this or something else that, you know, they would have gotten nominated for this if they hadn't also done this amazing work in another film, you know. It was right. such a year for all three of them. So Yeah. Yeah, and, and that brings and us then to we have Meryl Streep's, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I'm 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 passing the baton on Meryl Streep's <laughs> <laughs> Meryl Streep's character. No, that's okay. I feel like I'm talking too much, but that's um okay. No, so, you're Definitely not. <laughs> With Meryl Streep's character, so it, it takes place in, you know, quote-unquote present time, which means present as of the making of the movie, so, you know, 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. And um, she plays a woman who uh, basically, she had been involved with um, a poet uh, played by Ed Harris. And um, they had been romantically involved at some kind of undetermined point in in their past. And then at some point they went their separate ways as a couple and, in fact, both started seeing people same sex. So, you know, now Meryl Streep has been in a long-term relationship with Allison Janney. He had been in relationship with a number of men, including Jeff Daniels. Um, so she is kind of his caretaker because he has been diagnosed and is dying pretty rapidly of AIDS. And so she is 
her storyline takes place all in one day. I guess all three of their stories kind of take place in, in oh. one day, basically. But her, her, her day is a day when she's trying to put a party together because Ed Harris is getting an award um, for his, basically a Lifetime Achievement Award for his for his poetry. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, her scenes, she, she interacts with a few more people than the rest of the characters as she's trying to get ready. She starts by going to see him, and he's kind of in a, a little bit of a crabby, feisty mood and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of seems, um, I don't even know how to describe how he seems. It's not um, its not disinterested in the award, but it's just kind of, it doesn't, you can tell it's not meaningful to him, and he's just kind of frustrated with where he is in, in his life. And I his, think there's a sense for him that he hasn't earned it, that perhaps he's getting it because he is dying. Right. And um, which makes him um, not self-pitying, but almost cantankerous about it. He's almost angry. Yeah, he's pretty um, resentful of everybody. Yeah. This. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he's having, uh, I, I think, um, you know, he's having issues with with hearing voices, which is also a recurring theme, I think, mm-hmm. for in all three storylines. Um, um, yeah, and so they discussed that a little bit. And so then Meryl Streep, like I said, has been in a relationship with Allison Janney, and, and it's kind of interesting because Ed Harris's character, obviously they have, Meryl's character and, and Ed Harris's character have been not a couple for a very long time, but you can tell that, that his presence is kind of, you know, like right in the middle of her relationship with Allison Janney. It puts a huge amount oh, of distance, yeah. or distance between, between Meryl's character and, and Allison Janney's character. Then Jeff Daniels' character comes back, and he has a, a really remarkable scene with Meryl. Um, oh gosh, <laughs> so good! It's so yeah. good. Like I don't. I mean, every scene, every every scene makes me like a giddy school kid because the acting is so yep. spectacular. It's just people at the top yeah. of their craft, you know, with a great script. Um, yeah. And great direction. So, okay, I feel like at this point we probably. You know, we've explained probably enough of the movie, I think, at this point. Um, yeah, I think You know, so. people, people can kind of figure it out from there. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. This just, this is really it's such a great, great movie and such a great, I mean, it's a sad movie for sure. It's it's hard to take in it in a way, but I don't know. I don't find it to be as uh, bleak and depressing as your kind of, typical movie about depression and suicide I guess I don't know no I think because and this was what's interesting for me I saw this film when it came out in 2002 I was what or 2003 I was what 20 21 years old the the difference in my viewing experience between then and now is really incredible for me because You know, at twenty twenty one, I I've lived no doubt a a, a pretty privileged life, um, and and at twenty twenty one, you know, I was still you know the world's your oyster. Um, I was in I was you know at a liberal arts college in Wisconsin. I'd, I'd gone to high school in in Monterey, California, and I. I remember thinking at the time that the movie was good and powerful and I liked the performances, but I didn't, I don't think I connected with it personally because I didn't, 
I didn't quite understand. I didn't understand the themes they were dealing with. I, I mean, I obviously have a brain in my head and could see it, but couldn't quite feel it because I hadn't experienced anything right. like that. Right. And, um, you know, since then, what, it's been, what, 15 years? Uh-huh. It's crazy. I can't believe it's been 15 years. Um, you know, I've lived a life like every other human being, but, you know, I've I've dealt with depression myself and and that sense of of feeling like an outsider and really trying to trying to grapple with what kind of autonomy you have as a human being and how much of your life is dictated by what other people think you should do and what you feel like you should be doing and um to watch it again now um it, it was just an entirely different experience where, you know, I identified with every single one of those characters, those female characters, um, very powerfully. Um, and, yeah, and then on top of that, I, you know, I can't remember the last time I watched Ed Harris in something. <laughs> and he's so good. He's He's so good in this movie. And the same thing with Jeff Daniels. And the same yeah. thing with, like, Tony Collette. You know, these actors that I, I love and adore and haven't watched lately. And to to revisit their skill in such a wonderful, wonderful movie. Holy moly. No, I agree with you. It's kind of interesting that I read a couple reviews. Uh, I actually read several reviews of this movie. And a couple of the... Um, reviews actually kind of pointed at Ed Harris as being the one who is miscast in this, which, I, I you know, really? struck me as a little bit strange. Yeah, there were a couple that felt, as there was one I can't remember, I think it was maybe, maybe, it was either the New York Times or the Rolling Stone review, I can't remember which one. One of them called his performance out of tune. So, it, you know, kind of made it sound as though his performance were much bigger than uh, some of the other performances in the film. Um, I thought he was very good too. Um, I always like him, though. I think I he's feel a like really he had to be. Actor. Yeah. It didn't. It it wasn't discordant for me, um, at, at all. And I felt like, I mean, in many ways, he is he is the byproduct of. I mean, he he's the he's the byproduct of the themes you're dealing with in the film, right? Like. You know, when somebody's not allowed to essentially live their truth, what happens and what are the consequences of that? Right. And how does it affect other people in your life when you're not being true to who you are and what you need? And, you know, Julianne Moore's character, she's, you know, married a man and settled down in suburban America and had two kids, and it absolutely wasn't her truth. I, I mean, it was either ending her life or leaving her family and starting over. She makes that choice, and she leaves... You know, she leaves uh, Ed Harris's character as a kid, and right. you know, I, I mean, he's the walking repercussion of it for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's it. That's an important part of the storyline that we left off. I think. Yeah. Uh, what that connection yeah. between the two of them was, but. Um, yeah. No, I think they're all good. I think he's. I think he's great in it. Um, and he, you know, he was up for awards for it. Uh, the the movie. Was up for it was nominated for nine Oscars, and uh, it only won one. It won Best Actress for Nicole Kidman, um, but it was nominated for Best Picture, uh, Supporting Actor for Ed Harris, Supporting Actress for Julianne Moore, Director for Stephen Daldry, Screenplay, 
um, film editing, which I, I, I'd like to come back to that, actually, score for Philip Glass, which was a very, very mm-hmm. beautiful score, um, beautiful. and costume design, which we talked about earlier. But actually, I want to go back to the editing, because it was kind of funny, mm-hmm. because you said something earlier about costume design and how you notice it's, you know, when it's bad, and you don't notice it when it's really good. And I swear to you, I had the exact same thought about film editing earlier. Really? Because when I when I noticed that this film was nominated for film editing, I remember thinking, boy, this is kind of a funny movie to be nominated for film editing. But when I watched the movie, it made complete sense because there were so many moments where, you know, there were, like, one of them would wake up and then it would flash forward oh, to another yeah. one of theirs waking up. And it was really remarkable in a way that I don't think was probably easy to do. And so while, you know, a lot of times a film editing award goes to something like a war movie or something, you know, uh-huh. like, a, like a big budget movie where it's just the editing is important because, you know, it helps hide things. This one was like the editing... I had the same thought about, like, you don't notice it unless it's either really good or really bad. You know, like, movies that are yeah. that are good, you kind of don't notice the film editing. But you do notice it when it's really good. And I noticed it. I remember thinking as I was watching it this time, boy, this is really, really good editing. And then it, you know, it, it did get Yeah. So. It's almost, it has a musical quality to it because there's yeah. a lot, there is a lot of intercutting, especially at the beginning. Where you're right, yep. where there's like there's almost a musical flow to, you know, introducing the audience to these three women and their mirrored paths and mm-hmm. how they connect to each other. Yeah, it's you're right. I was going to ask you if you've got a favorite scene. Oh, there are so many of them. I mean, I could have a favorite scene for for all three of them. Although I, I think we talked about, right. it, I think the train station is easily Nicole Kidman's. Um, and Julianne Moore, there are so many, but I like the Tony Collette scene a lot. With Meryl, I mm-hmm. think if I had to choose, I think it would be the one with Jeff Daniels. Um, I think that's just such a great scene. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that scene. I, it's it's her breakdown the, scene. <laughs> yeah, but it's well, not she's amazing. The, she's it's one of my favorite lines in the film, and when you know he's being kind of he, he's being biting without being direct. You know, right. slightly, slightly condescending and rude, and and they're talking about Richard Harris has written this novel, which is, you know, everyone sort of talks about how it's very difficult to read, that it's it's um, a, a difficult read, but Meryl Streep is in it. He's written about her, and um, he'll make a remark to her <laughs> about it, and she says. My only regret is that he didn't write. She says something like, my only regret is that you're not in it very much. (laughs) Right. Right. And it's just sort of this amazing barb. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a well done scene. It's a, it's a nice, um, it kind of sets in motion the rest of like what her, what her day and maybe, you know, the rest of her, in some ways the rest of her life is going to look like, you know, kind of, it causes her to confront something and it's always amazing like when those moments catch you by surprise and oftentimes you find yourself in those moments with with people you don't you would never think oh i'm going to have these like really revealing you know like i'll discover something in front of this person who is really an unlikely person for me to be having this conversation um with yeah. who i'm going to discover this amazing thing but even things like you know she um in the scene meryl goes to like turn on the water and it kind of 
phrase everywhere. Do you remember that? Uh-huh. It's just, uh-huh, that, yeah. that was an accident. That wasn't supposed to happen. Um, but she kept going with it. And what I love about it is, like, how she turned that moment into something. Because then she spends the next, like, five, ten seconds just looking for something that she can wipe off her hands, which are now, like, you know, covered with water. And I don't know. There's yeah. just something about those those accidental moments. that It's just so good. And Jeff Daniels is as good as she is in that scene, too. You know, it's just... Oh, yeah. Um, just so so good it's just great i know um, i was like i think we, i think we should um once we're finished recording this episode i think we need to go about back and count the number of times we use the word good yeah probably <laughs> i mean my my favorite meryl street scene i think in this film actually she has almost no dialogue it is when julianne moore shows up oh um yeah at her door and they sit down and have a conversation about what happened and why Julianne Moore left her family. Uh-huh. And Meryl Streep's eyes are unbelievable. If you watch her face, she is I would I would argue that she's not even moving her face. And her eyes what was amazing about it is this woman is saying, you know, what do you do when, um, you know, do I choose death or do I choose a different life without my family? And I made my right. choice and I'd like to say I regret it is basically the message. And when they cut to Meryl Streep, what's phenomenal about it to me is that I I would see a moment of, of empathy and understanding that would shift into judgment. Right. And then shift back to empathy and understanding and then shift back to piercing judgment. And she was flowing between those two things without saying a word and and barely moving. It's amazing to me. It is. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. I think there are so many of those scenes where there's just so much going on. There's just so many layers to, to so many yeah. of the scenes in this. It's just they're all playing a couple of things all at once. It's really remarkable. Those are scenes that you end up, like, you know, hoping for as an actor, but they're not easy to do. Um, no. Julianne Moore and Meryl were both saying that, you know, there was a lot of crying in this in this movie that they had to do and, that, and how hard that was for them. You know, Meryl mm-hmm. in particular was saying that a lot of her scenes she ended up, you know, she would be crying for nine hours and how, how physically taxing that was. Oh, wow. You know, to to do these breakdown scenes and and everything, but yeah, it's just it's it's such a it's even I think better than I remember it being actually. It's just a really really well done film overall. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. So it, it got a whole bunch of award season stuff. It was nominated for a couple. It was nominated for a lot of Golden Globes. Too, but um, it won two things. It won Nicole Kidman again, but it also won Best Picture Drama at the Golden Globes that year. Oh. And there was part of me what that was fine. Well, Picture at the Oscars that year? Chicago, and that's why it won at the oh. Golden Globes because they do the two different categories. So I'm sure Chicago yep. won that year in you know comedy musical. Um, yeah, Chicago won a bunch of stuff that year, including Best Picture, but Nicole Kidman beat Renee Zellweger from it, and Julianne Moore from Far From Heaven, Far From Heaven, Salma Hayek for Frida and Diane Lane for Unfaithful, which is, that's another really great performance. Um, yeah. Diane Lane in that in that movie, but 
Um, the movie was also the AFI movie of the year um, that year. So that's a pretty big award. And there was a $25 million budget, and in the U.S. it made $41.5 million, but it, it made another, like, $30 million through Europe. So, it, you know, it made some significant money, yeah. all things considered. It did, it did pretty well. I remember it being pretty successful at the time. So Yeah. Yeah, um, it has an 81% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which brings me to something I, I warned you about before we started. But uh-huh. I want to read a quick email that we got from, from somebody, or part of this, because it deals with okay. this exact subject. Uh, we got an email. She sent it directly to me. I keep forgetting to tell people that if you want to email us, we would love to hear from you. And, you know, as you will now learn, I might read your email. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so if you want to email us, we're at uh, Meryl Street Podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. Um, so I won't say this person's full name. I'm just going to say from Laura. Um, but, okay, so the first paragraph she was talking about, um, she was saying nice things about us. I, I won't read that. But um, she was talking about the episode that we did about uh, out of Africa. And she she mentioned uh-huh. that you were surprised that the ranking for for that movie was so low on Rotten Tomatoes. And she said, now, I wasn't aware of this. I'm just going to read this directly from her. So it says, perhaps you're not aware that Meryl, meaning Meryl Streep, has been outspoken against the Rotten Tomatoes ranking and how their so-called critics are mostly male, which honestly I can't think of a single male yeah. other than yourself who has ever said anything nice about a Meryl Streep film. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to <laughs> step out of it for a second. I don't think that's true, but I appreciate it. I know what you mean by that. <laughs> Uh, and then going back to it, she says, but I heard her speaking once or twice about it, and she even figured out the percentage of males to females, both critics and guests on the site, and she was appalled at how the rankings skewed towards action films, specifically superhero mm-hmm. genre, while any movies about mm-hmm. women, by women, for women, were much maligned. And this was around the time she decided to get involved in supporting women screenwriters and started the Writers Lab for Women. So thank you, Laura, for that email, because I did not know any of yeah. that. I had no. I sort of peripherally knew. I I I know generally the the issue in Hollywood with film critics generally being men, and so it's right. making it very difficult for women's stories to, um, you know, be received well. There's there's definitely an implicit bias going on. I did not realize that Meryl Streep had 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 been you know specifically outspoken about Rotten Tomatoes. That's amazing information. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look at that closer. I to tell you the truth, I don't think I've ever gone on Rotten Tomatoes. I, it's not a it's not a resource that I ever use. So um, you know, I, I'm not saying it's yeah. not valid because it's you know, I from my understanding, it's just kind of like it's a summation of a, as many different reviews as possible. So it, it seems like it'd be a good source. Yeah. You know, except for this. And it does separate right? critics and audience. Right. Um, so you kind of, you get to see the rankings. The reason why um, I see it, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you go if you go onto iTunes to rent or purchase a movie, it will give you the Rotten Tomatoes rating on iTunes. iTunes uses it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so um, oftentimes when I see that percentage rating, I'll go in and look, um, and iTunes will actually link to the Rotten Tomatoes um, like blurbs from the critics. As to what they had to say about it. Hmm. Well, it makes yeah. sense. I mean, like I say, it seems like a good resource in some ways. It, it not taking into account, you know, this information that was just passed along to us, you would think until you start thinking more deeply about it that it would, you know, 
like I say, it's a it's a resource for as many different reviews as possible. Um, it's just a matter of our, uh, you know, is is more always better. It depends on how <laughs> diverse the field is yeah. who's writing the reviews. But um, I think in that regard, it's probably a good thing that we're getting as much information as possible. It's just we're not getting quite as much from, uh, you know, certain sects of the population, which is an important um, aspect to it for sure. So, um yeah. Yeah, so thank you for that email, Laura. Um, yeah, anything else about the hours? I feel just completely satisfied with this movie and would highly recommend it to people, I think. This was in your top five, right? It was, yes, and I think it's going to stay there. Did we do top there. five or top ten? We did top five, right? Five, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I don't I don't know what I'm going to push out, but this this is, I am I'm changing my stance on this film. I, I moved this now? film into quintessential Merrill. Good. Yeah, see, now it's been confusing because we started out that first episode with the top five, and then the last couple episodes I've been saying, is this essential Merrill? Is it a, in the 10-film starter pack? So that's why we're, we have <laughs> scales. But, you know, 10 films obviously gives us more. And the, and the thing is, you know, I mean, Merrill's made, what, 60 movies or something, so it's hard to narrow it down to five. You know, 10 is hard. Oh, yeah, I agree. I I like the idea of sort of like a 10-film Meryl Streep starter pack. This is definitely in there, and it's probably towards the top. Yeah, yeah. It's just, um, like, there's, it's just from, from top to bottom, just well done, I think. And it's, it's not just Meryl. She's being surrounded by the, you know, the very best, too, which always helps a situation. Uh, Yeah, I can't actually think of anything critical to say about this film. Yeah. The only thing that I thought about it was there were a couple of times, and actually I'm I'm thinking of one in particular, Mm -hmm. um, where I thought maybe I would have made a slightly different choice in terms of like spelling something out, where it felt maybe like the audience wasn't being trusted. I'm just going to tell you what the moment was. It's right after the scene with Julianne Moore where she goes to that hotel room and there's that great Uh effect of, of the water flowing around the, the bed, uh-huh. you know, so so as we mentioned earlier, Julianne Moore goes to this hotel and she takes out some pills and, you know, our, our thought is, is she going to kill herself? And in the moment we think, um, you know, if she does, she's going to kill herself with these pills. But then what she does is she opens up Mrs. Dalloway to continue the book and she kind of has this vision of, you know, how how Virginia Woolf killed herself and, and what that would look uh-huh. like for her. So, you know, she's just lying on this bed after kind of having fallen asleep reading this book, and the water just pours around her. It seeps in. It's a great effect. And uh-huh. then she kind of wakes up from this dream, and she says, I can't. I can't. Oh, yeah, yeah. The dialogue didn't need to be there. Exactly. That's the one moment where I found myself thinking, I didn't need to hear her say, I can't. I could see that. I could understand it if she just woke up. You know, and like I say, it just read to me a little bit like the audience wasn't being expected to get what she was thinking. And I think I right. think people would have gotten it. That's really the only thing, the only moment, and it has nothing to do with Julianne. It's, she delivers the line wonderfully. It's just, it's a matter of, you know, the script in that one moment, which is so picky, you know, um, but for whatever yeah. it's worth, Isn't that's that amazing? one thing. No, it's like that's. That's that's what our criticism. I I will say one thing that I wish was there, and um, 
I don't think it's necessary, but I would have liked it. There's a lot of there's a, a lot of of mystery um surrounding um Meryl Streep and, and Ed Harris's background. Right. And you you don't really get a lot. Right. I mean you get a sense that he's incredibly important in her life and is this sort of presence, but I think and I don't know how it would have been accomplished well, you know, without getting into some you know, exposition, which is always dangerous. Right. Um, I think I would have liked a little bit more in that regard. So just a little bit more framework, and I'm not sure what that would have looked like. But I think I think it would have helped. Yeah. I Yeah, I can see what you mean by that. Um, yeah, that one is more through implication than it is through, you know, being explicit about what exactly is in their past. But... Yeah, and really, I mean, they, they're such wonderful actors that they're seen together. I, I mean, you obviously get the full weight of their history, um, right. that, that it's intense and that it's deep and that it's unique and that it's definitely getting in the way of their other relationship. Yeah. Um, and and they, they do that beautifully. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, shall we move on to our other two segments here? Sure. Which uh, which would you rather do, the movies Meryl was almost in or Six Degrees? Let's do Six Degrees. Okay. So last week, you chose, do you remember? <laughs> Justin Timberlake. Yes. It actually was way Did you find than one? I thought it was going to be. I found really? six. Really? You I found did. six? I found six, yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Do tell. Okay, so I found I found four of these just thinking about it. The last two I went on his IMDB page but I didn't click on the movie. I just looked at the title and like thought to myself, wait, who else was in that? So the ones I got okay. without without any help were, you know, he just did I don't I guess maybe this one doesn't count because it's just a voice, but I knew he just did a voice in that movie Trolls that came out. Yes. Um, and I knew Anna Kendrick did too, and Anna Kendrick was in right. the woods with her. That was the right. one that, when you said it, popped into my head. The other one, which came later, was Inside Lewin Davis with Terry Mulligan. I, I really liked that movie a lot, actually. He didn't have I a have very not good seen it. but yeah, and she's always really good. But she was in Suffragette with with Merrill, and then okay. it, it, and then um, Trouble with the Curve, which was a movie that actually featured two. Clint Eastwood, who we've talked about a few times, who was in Bridges of Madison mm-hmm. County, and Amy Adams was in that too, who's done uh, Julie and Julia and Doubt with Meryl. Um, mm-hmm. He also did a movie called In Time with Amanda Seyfried, who did Mamma Mia with Meryl. So those are the ones that I got from thinking about it, which is kind of <laughs> crazy. And then when I began, when I looked at his IMDb, I noticed there were two more. Uh, that I could come up with, one of which was Alpha Dog, which featured uh, him and Bruce Willis. And he also made a smaller movie called Open Road with uh, Jeff Bridges, who was in The Giver oh, okay. of Meryl. So that was I've got a, a I, whole lot. Of <laughs> I've got to right tell you, I'm not, I'm not a huge Justin Timberlake fan. Me either. Um, and, and I think you and I have discussed this a little bit. I, yep. I you know, I, I feel not that... You know, I understand acting is the business of of having people watch you. <laughs> right. But I I feel like Justin Timberlake stretches for it a lot. Like like he's oh, yeah. he's going to constantly photobomb you. He's that guy. Yep. 
Yep. And there is, um, I can't remember whose Twitter account it ended up on, but it's Backstage Oscars, and it's him and Meryl Streep. Oh, really? And he's doing this affected... Like, I can't believe I'm meeting you. And he's got his hands in the prayer position up at his lip. And this is could be me totally, photo assumption. It's a video. She's having none of it. She's like, who is this weirdo? Right. <laughs> but, you know, she's so, she's a very, she's so generous generally that she was like, oh. And so she gives him a hug, but it's very, very brief. And she tries to walk away and he stops her. And she's like, ah. <laughs> and it's it's really an amazing, very, very short backstage video from the Oscars that I highly recommend everybody watch. I, I will check it out. I'm with you yeah. on the like, I feel like he's always trying way too hard. And that, that just kind of puts me off a little bit. But actually, similarly to kind of what you're saying here is, like, there seems to be a lack of, he, he seems to be one of those people, I don't mean this to, I don't know, it probably will just sound mean, but I don't think he's, he seems very comfortable in his own skin. And the reason I say that no. is because he seems to always modify his entire persona based on who he's around. He would change every aspect about who interesting. he was based around who was around him instead of just like being your authentic self. And Maybe yeah. he's better about that now, but it just it strikes me that he's kind of always had that persona in my eyes. I don't know. I don't really get it. I guess he, so. I guess I when people talk about his talent as if he's like the next Michael Jackson or the next I don't even know who. You know, it, I just don't get it. I don't get it with him. He just seems like somebody who okay. You know, I mean, he's not, he's not horrible by any stretch, but it's just not it's not amazing. He's never once amazed me, I don't think. No. Well, and it's just so interesting, sort of the social backlash for somebody who tries too hard. Yep. Um, I think, you know, Anne Hathaway faced it with, with Les Mis. She, she got, I mean, she really got slammed with it. And, um, you know, there are other actors who've been in a similar situation where people people have a radar and they pick up when you're trying too hard and don't feel comfortable in your own skin. And in, in that industry where it's <laughs> it's such a horrible challenge because, one, you have to be comfortable in your own skin to be an actor because you're front and center stage all the time, but the very nature of the industry and the way it's built makes you insecure all the time, right. and, um, and, and rightfully so. And so it's, it's got to be a challenge, but I um, – but yeah, I guess I just backlash, get a, right? Justin Timberlake. Right. No, Heavy? I mean that's the thing. It's like Anne Hathaway gets slammed for it. Right. But, oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, some people are talking about it. Like I read, I read a blog called Lady Gossip. I mean, and and she's wonderful. She's she's Canadian, and uh, um, it's just very sort of a smart feminist look at Hollywood, and I recommend the blog to anybody. Uh, but but she talks about Justin Timberlake quite a bit fr- from this same perspective. And he's just, oh, you know, okay. he tries too hard, and she can't – she really has a difficult time with him as well for that very reason. Um, but, sure. no, I mean, if you're talking about, like, a major backlash, absolutely not, which is frustrating for me. Like, why yeah. is Anne Hathaway facing, you know, facing it to – such an extreme degree that it could potentially affect her career 
Right. And Justin Timberlake is getting nominated for Oscars. Yeah. Well, I think part of it has to do with overexposure. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of yeah, it has to do with Yeah, I think you're right. And he, he really hasn't been. Right, right. And that's that's being kind to him. Now, the, the other side of it is it's the gender thing that we keep coming back to where, you know, Anne Hathaway yeah. is judged harsh, more harshly than, than Justin Timberlake. Honestly, I thought I was the only one who felt this way. I can't say I get into conversations with people about Justin Timberlake very often, but <laughs> right. it, it sure seems <laughs> to me like he's pretty well regarded still. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised that not only you feel this way, but that there's somebody else in a blog writing about it. Because I thought it was just me. Like, I thought I just didn't get him. And that was fine, you know. It's, it's, well, I think I think what started it was the Super Bowl drama. Because, oh, yeah. you know, just Justin Timberlake is fine. His career is fine. Everything is fine. Janet Jackson's wasn't. You know, right. she's the one who's been permanently banned from the Super Bowl, not him. And I think it got people talking and then people sort of look at him through that lens of, of at least, you know, feminist writers are looking at him through a lens of male privilege. And it, it, sh- it sheds sort of a new light on on his behavior and how he engages. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So. And that kind of ridiculous scandal. I guess I don't really remember, like, what how it was handled when it happened. Um, but I seem to remember there was this kind of perception of like, oh, it was an accident at first. They tried to play it off as if that wasn't supposed to happen. But of course it was. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. There was no way Absolutely. that was an accident. You know. So I guess I'm not no. sure whether she, he, or both of them, or neither of them, I guess, um, kind of tried to play it off that way. But yeah, I mean, and what a ridiculous thing to have a scandal about. Uh, I mean, I guess that's neither here nor there. I mean, that's been debated many times before, and it's so long yeah. ago now, it's not worth going back to. But, like, that's just something that's so absurd to have been, you know, up in arms about. Yeah. But, yeah. So, interesting. Uh, yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> this we, has been our, gonna... I think this has been our most interesting episode. Star Wars <laughs> to the hours to Justin Timberlake's. Janet Jackson scandal at the Super Bowl. I think we've done well on. I think we've done well on running the gamut. We, we may get some feedback from Justin Timberlake fans, although maybe not. Um, I've, as usual, I've forgotten who we said we were going to do for Six Degrees for next time. Do you remember? Oh, Ruth Mega, who oh, was yeah, yeah. who was just Oscar nominated for her performance in Loving. Yeah, so that'll be an interesting one for us to, to come yeah. up with. Um, yeah, let's do our last segment, which is the movie's mural was almost in. This is, I feel like, I, you know, now that we've had a, a kind of more interesting discussion on, on the Six Degrees one, I almost feel like I should save this one because I actually feel like there's a lot possible on this one, too. Meryl was apparently almost, again, this is according to the Internet, so God only knows, but was at least possibly being considered as Catwoman in Batman Returns back in 1992. No. Really? Uh, well, okay, <laughs> here's, there is a long list of other um, actresses who are being considered according to the Internet. But what was what I found most interesting about this was, you know, most of them say, you know, this person was considered, this person was considered. And next to Meryl Streep, it said Meryl Streep was considered for the role of Catwoman, but Bat, uh, but Batman, but Tim Burton thought she was too old to play the part. 
so there there seemed to be like something more there, the fact that, you know, she was deemed as too old. But the list of other people who were also considered, according to the Internet, included Ellen Barkin, Annette Benning, who actually was originally cast, but then she got pregnant. So then Michelle Pfeiffer oh. stepped in. Yeah. Um, Cher. Cher was considered. Cher has, over the last couple episodes, replaced Glenn Close. It's like she's coming up in every episode that we do now. That's amazing. Uh, Gina Davis. Bridget Fonda, Jodie Foster, Jennifer Jason Lee, Madonna, Lena Olin, oh. Demi Moore, Susan Sarandon, Brooke Shields, Deborah Winger, and most interestingly, because of something she did, Sean Young. So do you know the, the really? story about Sean? Yeah, do you know the story about Sean Young and Batman Returns? No. I mean, okay. I sort of generally know Sean Young's amazing reputation in Hollywood. <laughs> Well, I think this was part of it. I think this was maybe the start okay. of the like. So, you know, she had, um, I don't really remember the stuff that she was in in the 80s, but she was in a few things and kind of. Oh, you know, no Way Out. Life. She's amazing in No Way Out. Yeah. With Kevin Gardner. Right. Yeah. And Gene Hackman, too, right? Is that the one? Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, she uh, she was in some 80s movies and then, like, I think have some alcohol issues, maybe? Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe yeah. that's not true, uh, this allegedly, but I think that's kind of what was going on. And so she really, really, really wanted Batman Return. Campaigned very hard for it. Didn't get it. So she this showed up. This isn't when James Woods... No. She got crossways with James Woods. Okay. No. She showed up okay. on the lot. And they were filming no. Batman Returns. She showed up and confronted. She made uh, like a homemade Catwoman suit and showed up at, while they were filming and tried to confront Tim Burton and Michael Keaton about this. So I think oh I think security kind of like didn't let it happen. Um, but then, so as if that's not bad enough, in 2011, so a good 20 years after the movie's been made. She's booked to go on David Letterman's show. And what does she do? So by this point, her career had really fizzled out. And so what she... Did she dress up as Catwoman? Yes, she did the same thing. I I remember that. Yes. So I I think her thought maybe was like, you know, at this point, she was kind of notorious for that. So she maybe would like make fun of it. But she did exactly the same thing. She got, she, you know, she had a Catwoman suit. I don't know where she got it or if she made it or whatever. But she came out in the Catwoman suit 20 years after the movie was made, <laughs> talking about how she would have been a better choice. I mean, just completely, wow. compl- it was sad. It was really, wow. really sad. So, oh. anyway, but Meryl Streep could have been in Batman Returns, which would have been... <laughs> A different genre for us to explore. Actually, I like those movies, to tell you the truth. I, yeah, I, I would have, you know, I don't know. I, the I the Tim Burton Burt ones? I, I like all of them, to tell you the truth. Um, it, you know, I'm not much of a comic book thing, but, but those are easy enough to, like, follow and, and get. And I like Michael Keaton as Batman. Yeah, I agree. You know? So yeah, um, it would have been interesting. There are a lot of, a lot of people that were... Almost the penguin too, but we'll we'll go into that another time. Okay. It was a really like that could have been such a crazy movie, you know, just absurd. Like Marlon Brando could have been the penguin. Just that's is all I'm saying. So <laughs> that is crazy. Wow. Yeah. 
So, um, cool. Well, we did the hours today. So, uh, we are going to take a week off. It's for my schedule. Um, I'm traveling this coming week, and it's just going to be too hard to record something next week. But when we come back in two weeks, we're going to do something special, something we've been talking about doing for a while, and now we're finally Mm -hmm. going to do. So tell them what that is, Meryl. We are going to kind of switch gears and focus our episode on Carrie Fisher and, and her film career and sort of just do a broad overview of her films. And yep. Um, you know, how spectacular she is, mm-hmm. which will lead us into our next episode after that, which is Postcards from the Edge, which right. is um, starring Meryl Streep and written by Carrie Fisher. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of Carrie Fisher, uh, Meryl Streep connections. So the idea was, yes. you know, when we originally started this, um, you know, obviously Meryl is, is our first and, and favorite actress by a long shot, but there was a part of me that kind of wondered if if we should limit it to Meryl or if we should open it up to other people, too, that we like, you know, just the right. Lang and uh, really all sorts of people, uh, Sissy Spacek and Glenn Close and all sorts of folks. And uh, we decided we would keep it Meryl-focused, but that every few, you know, maybe every five to six episodes, we were going to just take an episode and, and, like you say, do the do a kind of one episode on somebody else's career. And most of the time they'll have a connection to Meryl Streep, but we're just going to, you know, talk about their entire body of work in, in one episode as best we can. So that's the plan. Two weeks from now you should get an episode um, on the great, the late, great Carrie Fisher. And, uh, yeah, and then after that we're going to do Postcards from the Edge, which is, I think, on both of our top five. Yeah, I think so. So looking forward to revisiting that one. So Me too. Cool. Yeah. So we'll look forward to that. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we'll look forward to it. So thank you all for for listening, and please feel free to email us and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast if you like it. We appreciate it. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. So we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.